Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. The early church in action, it's the only inspired account of the early church that we have. This is it. So we've got 28 chapters of just amazing goodness of the church of Jesus doing church the way that he intended for it to be. And today's Pentecost, right? And what did they do on Pentecost? They spoke in tongues and other languages, and it was interpreted, and they magnified the greatness of God and spoke of his mighty deeds through tongue speaking. So we're going to be learning more about that. And so, Lord, we turn to you. We worship in your presence. We open your word in your presence, and we acknowledge that your word brings us into contact with you. So we ask resurrected Jesus, who is the word of God, walk among us, speak to us, teach us about yourself and your ways. In your name, Jesus, amen. So we are in Acts chapter eight, and last week we looked at Stephen's martyrdom. And we saw many things from that moment, but we saw really overall as persecution increases, heaven opens. And we saw Stephen, this marvelous young guy, a 20-something, the first martyr in the church, imitating Jesus. So even in his dying moments, he was striving for Christ-likeness and forgave the very people that were pelting him with stones. And so what an amazing person that is there for us to see. And so today we're going to see extending from Stephen's life and death, we're going to see the gospel spread to Samaria. And we're going to see that Samaria was actually a bridge to the broader Gentile world. We're going to hear more about this. This was significant for the gospel to begin to spread like fire and to take root in a place like Samaria was very important. So we're going to see the apostles get involved and powerful story here. We're going to see there's four parts to this. And it gives a vivid picture of what evangelism was like for the early church and then some of the challenges that they faced. So I'm going to read it, Acts 4, Acts 8, 4 to 25, and then we'll make some comments on it. Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed. And many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. Now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. 
and they listened eagerly to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. And I say this for my own sake. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Again, I know that some of you come from a liturgical background, and that might seem strange, but I am saying that because it's true. And so I'm preaching to my own heart. This isn't just some holy book. This is the word of God. And so that's why I'm declaring that. Amen? And it just influences everything that we are and everything that we do here, God's word. So the first thing we see here found in verses 4 through 8, Philip is preaching and healing in Samaria. And we just noted that Stephen had been stoned as the first Christian martyr, imitating Jesus, forgiving even his murderers at the end of chapter 7. And then we see at verse 4, the Lord's sovereign power and plan. The Lord is using persecution. Look at verse 4. People are scattered because of the persecution that started with Stephen. Their lives were on the line. They were fleeing. And so Christians were scattered to begin to spread the gospel into new regions. And that's what we're going to be seeing in these verses here. The gospel going into the region of Samaria. Philip at verse 5, he is the first person in Holy Scripture that's called an evangelist. In the entire New Testament, he's the first one, and he, look at it, verse 5, he goes down to the city of Samaria because Jerusalem was literally elevated. It was an elevated area, but metaphorically as well. The Jerus Jerusalem was the center of the world for the Jews and for the Christians, and so he's going down into another place. And friends, this Samaria place was just filled with history, troubled history, 
for the Jews and now for the Jewish Christians. So this was very significant. It was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, which fell about 700 years before Christ to Assyria and under the judgment of God. And so they ended up mixing with Gentiles and pagans. And so it really became, for the Jews, a place of mixture. That is a place where they were mixing the Jewish faith with idolatry. It was a place where they intermarried with people and adopted their pagan practices. And so you can imagine, for the Jews, this was a rather surprising place for the gospel to spread and take root. And for those early Jewish Christians. As I was looking at this passage, this is kind of a a strange note here, but I kept seeing on the page, Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. And I just wanted to share a little personal story here. In 1992, I had the opportunity to go to England to visit King's Arms Church. And it was a baby church. And we know King's Arms Church. We have some folks there right now. And they gave to us Mike and Jennifer Milner. Mike Milner was born again in that church. So I got to be there many, many years ago. And we were at a home gathering of the King's Arms leaders. And this was Steve Nicholson and I there with a team from the Evanston Vineyard. And we were gathered in this room. And I mean, it was packed like sardines. There's probably 35 of us in this room. And I looked at a guy in the room. And this was new to me. And I looked at this British dude. He looked like he'd walked right off a movie set from Cambridge or something. Had a tweed jacket and a little ha- uh, handkerchief coming out of his. He was just quintessential English guy. And I looked at him and I heard the Lord say, that's Philip the Evangelist. I was like, what do I do with that? So he got the gift of evangelism. What do I do here? And so in our, we worshiped together, we prayed, and then Steve and I started to give words, and we started, and so I just looked over and I said, the Lord told me you're Philip the evangelist, and I mean the air went out of the room, and this proper British guy went, and I thought, okay, I didn't mean anything offensive by that, and they all said his name is Philip, and he is an evangelist, and I wept like a baby, 22-year-old baby. I just sobbed and sobbed, and it wasn't supposed to turn on me, but it became ministry time to me, the dude from America, and I was just sobbing and snot flowing, and, and I kept saying in my mind, this is real. This God stuff, the prophetic, the gifts, the Holy Spirit speaking, it is real. And of all the names, I hadn't met any other Phillips, I hadn't met this dude that was pre-internet, I knew nothing about him. And the Lord whispered his name to me, and it built faith in me, faith that I've had to continue to contend for, that has evaporated at times, and the Lord's got to refuel me. But friends, this is real. The book of Acts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to ordinary people like you and me. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to walk around and expect to get names all the time. I'm sharing something that was rather remarkable in my early years, but he might. He might, and in that situation, I think the Lord was calling out his gift, and he was an evangelist, but his name happened to be Philip, so I peeled myself off the floor at the end of that and said, Lord, help me to prophesy and to not mix what you're saying, to just speak it 
in line with Scripture and leave it up to you. Amen, church? So I share some of those things, uh, sometimes in vulnerability. Uh, there's something called false humility sometimes where we cover up God's stories thinking that we're going to be humble. And the Lord sometimes says, I want you to tell that story because it makes much of me and my gifts. So I share that with you. Look at Philip. He is proclaiming Christ, the Messiah, to them. So it tells us in verse 4 that they were proclaiming the word. And then here in verse 5, it explains a little bit more about that. What is the word? It's the word about Jesus. It was centered on Jesus. He was the, the focus, the content. And we've seen Stephen gave us an example that they would focus on the person of Jesus and then unpack who he was and what he had done according to the scriptures. And so that's what Philip is doing, going around, proclaiming Christ and sharing the kingdom of God. This is the first time that we encounter this word that deals with evangelism. It's a Greek word to bring good news and it's going to appear five times just in this chapter here. The gospel, the word about the kingdom of God, the word about the name of Jesus. And as I mentioned, he is sharing Christ with people that the Jews and these early Christians historically had hated. So you think about Jesus in John 4, that woman that he met at the well, where was she from? Samaria. She was a Samaritan woman. And so what we're seeing now is God advancing the gospel of the kingdom through a region where historically they weren't loved people. They were on the margins. And the Lord said, I'm going right through that place Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and I'm going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And I'm going to bring peace to that region through the gospel. Historically, you've been taught to hate them. You know, the parable of the good Samaritan, they just avoided the Samaritan and they avoided the man and the Samaritan went in and did a good deed. So deep animosity and hatred and the Lord's going to bring healing through the gospel. Look at how Philip did it, verses 6 through 8. What's his method? Lots of words, handing out tracts, bargaining with people, pleading with them. No, he's coming in boldly and saying, Jesus is Lord. The scriptures told us he was coming. He came. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead. He's at the Father's right hand. And I'm here to tell you about it. And then his kingdom is here. And his kingdom is going to manifest his power and his kingly rule, and it's going to set people free. And so that's what we see happening in verses 6 through 8. And the people, it gets their attention, right? They pay attention to him, to the words and signs that are being done. Friends, is Philip one of the 12 that's named? He's not. I had one person answer that. He's not. So we have yet another person outside the 12 apostles who is walking in this kind of power. So again, the text is showing us very early on the 12 are amazing, unique followers of Jesus. It was 11 plus Matthias who replaced Judas. These are unique followers of Jesus for all time. We treasure them, but the text is showing us that we've got Stephen, we've got Philip, we've got other non-apostles who are doing the ministry of Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom and demonstrating it. And it's powerful. Look at verses 9 through 13. 
Philip is making his way through various towns. He's in Samaria, and at verse 9, we're introduced to this figure named Simon, Simon the magician. And we have some early second century testimony on him. So just within a generation, there's a guy named Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, and he writes about Simon the magician and tells us, and he knows because Justin Martyr is from Samaria, and he tells us that Simon the magician was so famous in Samaria that he was actually called for and went to Rome at one point with his magic arts, with his occultic power, and he dazzled the people in Rome and they built a statue to him. And so Simon was a famous pagan, right? And when it mentions magic, this is a mixture of kind of pseudoscience and astrology and divination and other occult practices that he had used to interest the people and to ensnare them, to seduce them into satanic ways and to keep them away from the Lord. And so we've got a power encounter that transpires here. But I wanted us to look, look at the the text here. At the end of verse nine, Simon thinks that he's someone great. And so there's a little bit of Isaiah 14 in there. I call it a Luciferian mindset. Lucifer says, and it records it in Isaiah 14, I will be great. And so he's kind of standing up in the face of God and saying, I'm going to be great like you. And so you find the same kind of nature operating in this Simon the magician who agrees with all the praise that he is great. He had a following, kind of like a first century rock star, one Bible scholar says. And so people from all social levels, all strata were calling him. This is a pretty high praise, isn't it? Look at the end of verse 10. This man is the power of God that is called great. I think he was a pretty significant emissary for the kingdom of darkness, wasn't he? Dazzling the people. The early church fathers go on to say that he's actually the founder of Gnosticism. Let's say that word together. Gnosticism. And basically Gnosticism was a movement. Can't really pin particular dates on it because it was evolving over several generations. But it was basically belief that you were saved through knowledge. Secret knowledge. That could only come through people like someone like Simon. And so it was the beginning of Gnosticism. Why am I mentioning this? Because Gnosticism is popular now. It comes in many shapes and sizes, many different outfits. And so Gnosticism is actually, you'd hear a lot of young people talk about getting into the new Gnosticism that's emerging. And so this figure here, the early church fathers point to him and say he was one of the originators of Gnosticism. He was actually the father of heretics for many. And he himself, if you look at the language here, again, we're dwelling with this because it's important to be able to discern modern movements that stem from things like this. He claims to be divine, doesn't he? He's saying that he is the power of God, he's great. 
And so I wanted us to just look at this for a moment here because, friends, you're going to have the opportunity to discern many things in this hour. Many of you already are. And so one of the things I would say, if you're looking at a person, a ministry, a movement, if this distinction is lost here between the creator and the creature or creation, then it's a red flag. Any time someone a book, a person, a movement talks about being divine or deity or that somehow the God spark is in them. And I, that just reeks of the kind of stuff we're, we're looking at here, Gnosticism. And it comes in some pretty compelling packages. I mean, this is the stuff of Mormonism and other heresies, others that are more compelling. So we do believe that we're made in the image of God, right? We're made in the image of the Holy Trinity, but friends, we are always creatures. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another through the Holy Spirit and becoming like Christ. Christ is being formed in us. It's almost so good that you think, whoa, it sounds like heresy. You are being shaped. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, you're being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but you always remain a creature, always before God, in humility as Christ is formed in us. Amen? And so we can just talk, we could talk all day about the different forms or iterations of this, Mormonism, theosophy, the New Age movements, even the very emperors that we encountered in the book of Revelation, they said they were divine. Antiochus Epiphanes said that he was an epiphany. He was an appearance of God. And so anytime we see these things, we hold the book right up at it, the sword of the word, and we say, that is not true. We are creatures before God. We look at this because for the early church, there were power encounters almost everywhere they turned. So this was a power encounter between Philip and between Simon the magician. And if you're alive and your eyes are open, you are seeing today an outburst of the occult. Would you agree? If you don't, then you need to say, Lord, open my eyes. And this is especially on behalf of the young people because the young people, I have conversations with them all the time. I've watched this with teenagers. And I mean, the occult and Gnosticism and all forms of heresies are coming after the young people because God has big plans for them. And so I encourage them, get in the book every day. Pray it, obey it, meditate on it, give yourself to the truth of scripture and interact with a person who is the truth, the Lord Jesus, and prepare yourself. Last year I shared this with Wallace. Um, I got a word from the Lord about two rivers that were pouring into the earth simultaneously. And one river was unholy. And it was satanic. And it was the occult and a resurgence of magic and all of these things. And I was seeing it in my mind. It was like a dam breaking in a river of sewage water pouring into the earth. And very troubling. But the Lord said, there's a holy outpouring happening at the same time. It's a move of my spirit. And it's these two things side by side concurrently, not exclusive to one another. So friends, we live in a time of revival. 
The gospel is going forth to the nations, Matthew 24, 14. The Lord has plans here in our region. We're going to see an outpouring that's going to get people's attention, but it's going to happen alongside Satan bringing all that he's got as well. And so we want to be awake. We want to be immersed in the truth of Scripture, and we want to be prepared. You with me on that? And we have to have boldness. We have to have discernment. I encourage you to pray for discernment every day. Write this down, Hebrews 5.16. The author of Hebrews says that he's urging the church there, have your senses trained to discern between good and evil. And so the Lord uses our senses. That includes our thinking, but apparently the text says that there's something there with all of our senses that we can be so attuned to the truth of Christ, to the Holy Spirit, that we feel it. You ever have that? You get around a person, a book, something like that, and you just know there's something off here. That's Hebrews 5, 16. So quickly here, verses 12 through 13. Simon becomes a Christian. It's good news, isn't it? This hardcore pagan, guy who had great influence for the kingdom of darkness, and we don't know if he's a genuine believer or not. Sorry for that cliffhanger. The text doesn't say. We'll see in a moment here that he does believe, he's baptized, but Scripture says in James that even the demons believe. So just because he believed up front and was baptized does not mean that he was a genuine believer. I think a text is given like this so that the church learns to discern. And it gives us marks. It gives us a grid through which to evaluate people, alleged believers, and their ministries. And there's much here to learn about that. Was he a genuine believer? There's much debate around it. But I can tell you one thing is if you've got a question about someone, about their ministry, character is the test. The fruit of their lives, not just the power or miracles. We've got to grow beyond that. You've got to look at them. What's their life? What's their family life? What are their words like? How do they treat others? And if you've got questions around that, use your discernment. The third thing here, the apostles are sent. Verses 14 to 24, and there's two things that are happening in verses 14 through 24. The first is that word had gotten back to the apostles in Jerusalem, and they heard that this group, the Samaritans, were embracing the gospel, so they thought it's probably a good idea at this critical moment with all the history here to send Peter and John to investigate. So that's one thing that's happening in verses 14 through 17. And then a second thing is Simon watching the Holy Spirit being bestowed through the laying on of hands. And then he offers money to have that same authority and ability. And Peter rebukes him, as we saw in the text, and warns him and corrects him. So this is one of those moments. There's so much fun, good stuff here, but I'm going to abbreviate it and give you a few of the highlights. It's difficult to drill down into all the different pieces here. But this people group, verses 14 through 17, that the Lord would do this, 
that he would begin the outreach, the fanning out, the expansion of the gospel of the kingdom, and that it would have such impact here is very, very significant. And so that's probably why the the apostles sent Peter and John to do some investigating. It wasn't because they didn't trust Philip or that they doubted it was a genuine work of God, but it's kind of backup. It's support with revival breaking out in what was previously enemy territory. It's probably a wise idea to send some people to be there. Peter and John are investigating and confirming the revival that's breaking out in Samaria to endorse and shepherd what's happening there. There are theological things in here. Why was it that they were allegedly baptized in the name of Jesus and not the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? I just want to say we don't know that they weren't baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It was perhaps shorthand. And we learn later on in the book of Acts that some were being baptized in the baptism of John, the Baptist, right? A baptism of repentance. And so the apostles have to say, you know what? You're not baptized only into the forerunner's message and ministry, John the Baptist, and repentance. You're baptized into the name of Jesus. You become his possession. You belong to him. He's your Lord. And Paul will say this later on. I baptized a few of you, but I baptized you into Christ. So there's much that's happening here. And the text doesn't really necessarily say, give us all the answers that we're looking for. But Peter and John end up laying hands on the Samaritans. They receive the Holy Spirit. And friends, this is where some people get into trouble. They'll take a passage like this and isolate it. And they'll baptize only in the name of Jesus. That's not what the text says. Where would you go in your mind to counter that? We interpret scripture with scripture, right? We look at the whole council. If someone said, ah, we only baptize in the name of Jesus, where would you go to answer that? Thank you, Matthew 28. Christ himself says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, And of the Holy Spirit. So I think personally this is shorthand here that's being spoken of. And it's also not arguing for kind of a two-stage salvation or a two-stage reception of the Spirit. We're going to look at this later, but it doesn't mean that you receive Christ, you're baptized, and then sometime later you receive the Spirit. This is a unique moment. We already saw in Acts 2 that Peter preached at verse 38. You repent, you believe in Jesus, you confess him as Lord, you receive forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we have to interpret scripture with scripture, right? So we don't have weird, wonky theology, right? So let's end with this, and then I'm actually going to have Hillary come up and, and share a word. Simon is observing the Holy Spirit being bestowed through the laying on of hands. And frankly, this is where the word simony comes from. The selling of church offices, if you study church history and look at it, the the church, unfortunately, would sell roles or sacred things or particular offices, and they called it simony because of this passage. Peter rebukes him and says, you cannot buy spiritual authority. 
You cannot buy spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. It comes from God sovereignly. And so he's rebuked. And Simon asked them to pray for him. And we don't know, again, could he have just been a baby, immature Christian who was still filled with his pagan ideas? Yeah, probably the case there. We're not sure. But nonetheless, he becomes an example. We want to be like Philip, right? A follower of Jesus, given the authority. Peter and John, the same, the Holy Spirit flowing through us, giving glory to Jesus letting him work sovereignly, being submitted to him versus Simon, who's like, show me how I can do this. I want the authority and the power as a great follower of Jesus now. We're not sure. Why don't we stand? This ends at verse 25. Peter and John speaking the word of the Lord, starting back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel, and we're going to pick up at verse 26 in a couple of weeks and look at the Ethiopian official and we're gonna see Philip sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian official and friends, it goes full on at that point. The gospel going to all the nations. Acts 1.8, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then where? To the ends of the earth. This is our heritage. This is our family background.